If you see there on your table, some of you want the notes. We're going to look at Jesus' encounter with Pilate, with Herod, with the crowd. Jesus' encounter with the cross and then the burial of Jesus tonight out of Luke chapter 23. And the songs that we have just sung certainly go well with the passage we're going to be looking at tonight. You'll notice there in the first couple of verses that the whole group of them, speaking of the religious leaders of Israel in the context, rose up and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation, forbidding us to pay tribute to uh, tax to Caesar, and claiming that he himself is Christ. You'll notice that part of what drove the religious leaders of Israel to go to the Roman procurator was because they wanted Jesus put to death. They wanted him to die. They didn't just want to stone him under Jewish law. They wanted to put him to death. And at this time in history, the only way someone could be put to death under Roman occupation, as far as a Jew was, was concerned, was to obviously get the Romans uh, as part of it. So that's why I put there, it, is, it was absolutely necessary for Rome's support to get the death penalty for Jesus. You'll see here in this passage that Jesus is painted as a dangerous revolutionary. We're going to see in a moment Pilate's declaration of innocence after examining Jesus and that sin certainly overrode justice in this case. There were three parts to a to sort of a Roman trial, if you will, before someone like Pilate. There were the charges that were brought, then the person was examined, as we're going to see in a moment, and then the verdict was given. And I want to go back then to verse 2, where the religious leaders of Israel bring Jesus before Pilate and they began to accuse him. I want you to look at that word, accuse. That is a word from which we get the word devil from, and the concept of the devil being an accuser. And we know, obviously, Jesus being the sinless Son of God, that he was being falsely accused. And one of the things that you and I are going to confront in our life is that there will be times where we are falsely accused, not only by other human beings, but we know that the devil will continually try to accuse us as well. And when you and I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, like we've sung about tonight, the devil's accusation should hold or have no sway or power in our life. One of the overriding themes, too, that I want you to see tonight in this chapter is this. You will see in stark contrast this sinless Son of God who never deserved to go to the cross and suffer at all. And you will see that contrasted with this group of humanity representing really all of humanity that is sinful to the core, corrupt and cruel. And you and I are confronted with the fact in this chapter of Scripture that Jesus goes to a cross simply because He is the sinless Son of God. Now think about that. Jesus goes to a cross simply because He is the sinless Son of God. 
There will be times in our life, obviously not near to the degree of Jesus, but Peter talks about this, where we will suffer justly. Not because we've done something wrong. And Peter certainly encourages us never to have to suffer for our own sin or for doing something, you know, disobedient. But if we do suffer for righteousness sake, he says we are blessed. And we are simply following in the footsteps of our Savior. Beware of accusations. Know that just like Jesus, they will come in your life. Whether it's through the devil himself, some demonic spirit, or whether it's through another human being. But you'll also notice that after Pilate examines Jesus, that in verse 4, he gives his verdict. And his verdict, in fact, is given like four different times in this passage. Never does Pilate think that Jesus is guilty of anything that should send him to a cross. And so he says in verse 4, I find no basis for all accusation against this man. Literally what Pilate is saying is this man is not the source or author of anything criminal. Nothing. And what I want you to see tonight is there's actually four different times in this passage, not only is Pilate saying Jesus is innocent and he's done nothing wrong, but others get in on it as well. In fact, go over real quick to verse 15, where the Bible gives us a tidbit that at the beginning of verse 15, it also says, neither did Herod. In other words, Herod didn't find anything wrong with Jesus either. And then if you go over to verse 41, you will see that one of the thieves that was crucified next to Jesus says, this man has done nothing wrong. And then finally in verse 47, the centurion who had watched all of this unfold says, certainly this man was innocent. Over and over and over again, one of the things that the Holy Spirit wants to emphasize is that Jesus is suffering on a cross and he's sinless. He's righteous. He's done absolutely nothing wrong. And yet look at where he is. And, and again, this is contrasted then with a group of humanity that is so sinful to its core. So corrupt. So in need of a savior. So cruel that you see this contrast in a sense played throughout this chapter. No wonder we need a Savior. You, if you ever went to a chapter and read it, and, and, and I, I don't understand why man needs to be saved, why Jesus needed to come and be a Savior, read Luke 23 a couple of times. And you and I realize that where Jesus ended up had nothing to do with Him doing anything wrong. It had to, it had to show us it had to put forth like nothing else could how much mankind needed Jesus and needed saving and needed to be cleansed and transformed from the heart on out to everything outside. And so that's what we see here in Jesus' encounter with Pilate. Then we see Jesus' encounter with Herod beginning in verse 6. You'll notice there that Jesus is not an entertainer given to fulfilling curiosity, which was all Herod wanted. 
The Bible says that when he saw Jesus in verse 8, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some miraculous sign. Herod was treating Jesus like some sideshow at a carnival. And Jesus would have none of that. In fact, even when Jesus did miracles... It was never to grandstand. It was never to simply draw a crowd. It was always a manifestation that He was the Messiah. That He was fulfilling prophecy from the Old Testament. That's why Jesus never healed all blind people. He healed a few. That's why Jesus never healed all lepers. He healed a few. That's why Jesus didn't raise everybody from the dead. He raised a few because they were signs pointing to who he was. But he wasn't here just to perform miracles because the Bible clearly teaches teaches that miracles alone will not bring about faith in someone's life. People have seen miracles throughout Bible history, throughout human history. Miracles alone do not bring about faith. And so that's why the Bible says in verse 9, so Herod questioned him. Literally, in the Greek, Herod made demands of Jesus. Well, guess what? You and I don't make demands of God. Because notice, he goes on. the Bible goes on to say, questioned him at considerable length, and Jesus gave him no answer. Literally, in the Greek, Jesus gave him nothing. Nothing. Why? I put there in the notes, now that justice is silent, Jesus responds with his own silence. It is a reminder to us that Jesus will be glad to reveal himself and answer questions to those that he knows are genuine and sincere and seeking truth and are open to the truth of God. But to those who are hard-hearted and are closed off to any kind of truth and really don't want to know the truth, God is silent. God will not speak to those that he knows are not ready or willing to hear. Herod takes advantage of this occasion to mock Jesus. In fact, in verse 10, the chief priests and the experts in the law were there vehemently accusing him, and even Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt. Here's another important word. The word contempt means to treat of no value or importance, to trivialize. See, this has been the problem ever since the beginning of time. That that mankind has somehow not treated God with the worth and value that He deserves. Man continually, even today, trivializes God. Tries to put God on the side. We kick God out of everything. We say we don't want God in anything. And we try to marginalize God, even though God should be the very center of everything that men do. And that's why one day, the King of Kings is going to come, and all these kingdoms of the world are one day going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. He will reign. Every knee will bow, because one day, every human being that's ever been born is going to acknowledge the value and worth of Jesus Christ. And so today, even as Christians, one of the challenges before us is to make sure that we are striving to treat Jesus Christ with the proper worth and value and not to trivialize who He is and what He's done. 
This is why worship is so important. This is why Nicole tries to lead us in worship. This is why we teach the Word the way we do, trying to draw people's hearts to surrender to God because it is in these actions that we are telling God, God, you are worth me surrendering my life to you. You are worth me going up on that altar and becoming a living sacrifice. You are worth everything that I could ever give or do for you. Instead of giving God our leftovers and what we have left, and we'll make time for God when we get everything else that we want. No, treating God with proper value is putting Him first place. It is giving Him preeminence in our life. And this is what Herod and the rest of humanity was not doing, and that's why they crucified the sinless Son of God. Then dressing Him in elegant clothes, Herod sent Him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other, for prior to this, they had been enemies. One of these principles here, do you realize that just like love draws people together like it's doing at our church, that hate draws people together too? Hate draws people together. That's exactly what happened between Herod and Pilate. Then Jesus and the crowd, beginning at verse 13. And this is really sad because up to this time, pretty much the opposition to Jesus was centered in the religious leaders of Israel. The common people of, of Israel pretty much were behind Jesus up to this point. But now, through the pressure of the religious leaders and through the turning of the tide, even the crowd, even the common people begin to turn. And that's why I put there in the notes the fickleness of people. Some of the same people who a week earlier were waving palm branches and telling Jesus as he was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, now was going to say, crucify him, release Barabbas, send him to the cross. So Pilate called together the chief priests, verse 13, the rulers and the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. When I examined him before you, I did not find this man guilty of anything you accused him of doing. Again, over and over again. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, he's done nothing deserving of death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. This is... This is why it's so important that we don't just read the Bible and, and not take time to stop because we can just read things like this and just keep on going and not think about what we just read. When the Bible says they flogged him, that was a Roman scourging. It literally meant to chastise with blows. And the Romans had a a cruel way of doing it. They used what was called a Roman flagrum. It was basically a whip that had many different branches, if you will, of leather off of the whip. And on each of those branches of the whip, they would attach pieces of metal, glass, and bone. And when that whip would literally go into someone's back, it would literally tear out chunks of flesh. So when we read that they flogged him, let's not forget what that meant. The sinless Son of God, who had never done anything wrong, was being scourged 
by Roman soldiers out of his love for us. They all shouted, verse 18, out together, take this man away, release Barabbas for us. Can you imagine? I mean, you and I, as human beings, we've certainly been rejected. And there's been times in our life, I'm sure, where we were justly rejected, but I'm sure there have been times where we were unjustly rejected. But nothing like Jesus. To be love incarnate, to be God incarnate, to be holy, to be absolutely sinless and righteous, and to be rejected by the very ones that He created and brought into being. How much of a rejection is that? That's why Jesus can understand it when you and I get rejected. Because He was ultimately rejected. Verse 19, this... This was a man who had been thrown into prison, speaking of Barabbas, for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Really nice guy. Basically, a political terrorist was being released, and Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was the one that was going to go to the cross. Again, Pilate addressed the crowd. The crowd kept getting louder. And here's what I want you to see. Even though Pilate kept trying to release Jesus, notice verse 23. They were insistent demanding with loud shouts that he be crucified. The word insistent means to get stronger and and to increase stronger pressure. Now here's the important point. Just like with Pilate, I think one of the principles that the Bible is reminding us of is this. We're going to be in situations in our life where like Pilate, there's going to be an ever-increasing and growing pressure on us to do something. And God wants to build such internal strength through His Holy Spirit into our life that we can, from the inside out, withstand that kind of growing pressure. Obviously, we know that Pilate didn't have that kind of strength because the Bible says their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man that they asked for who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder and handed Jesus over to their will. Let's then go to Jesus' encounter with a cross, beginning at verse 26. They led Jesus away. They seized a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene, a North African man who was coming in from the country, and they placed a cross on his back and made him carry it behind Jesus. Jesus probably was so exhausted at this point from being up all night. All the trials, all the beatings, all the mockings, all the scourging, everything. That physically it was going to be hard. And they wanted him to still be alive when he got there because they wanted the cruelty of crucifixion to take effect. And obviously we know that was in the plan of God as well. So Simon carries his cross. The thing I I want you to see here is this. Just like we're going to see again throughout this whole passage. Just like one of the overarching themes is is contrasting the sinless Son of God with a cruel, uh, corrupt, and sinful humanity. Here's another thing you're going to see. That in the midst of such darkness and sin, God is always at work. This man identified with Christ, in a sense, in carrying his cross. And I believe that it was through this experience that Simon... 
and at least his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, that are not mentioned here in Luke, but mentioned in somewhere else, actually come to faith in Christ. See, God uses sometimes the darkest times to work, because there's no darkness too dark for the light of the world. And, and there's no hopelessness or situation that is so hopeless that the God of all hope cannot work. God wants to remind you of that tonight. So on his journey, obviously Jesus still has the wherewithal, even though Simon is carrying his cross to talk to these women. In verse 28, he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. But because you've rejected me as a nation, a greater pain is coming on the nation of Israel than what you think I'm going through right now. And he talks about that. There's coming a time where having children is going to be such a burden. And in verse 30, people are going to say to the rocks, fall on us. That's how bad it is. And Jesus makes a very interesting statement in verse 31. He says, if such things are done when the wood is green or hard to burn, what will happen when it is dry or easy to burn? I think what Jesus is simply saying is, if they're doing this to me, the sinless son, if the Roman Empire is doing this to me, the sinless son of God, the presence of God is right here. What do you think they're going to do when God is absent? What do you think they're going to do to you in 70 AD when Titus comes marching through the city of Jerusalem? If you think they're treating me this, this way, what do you see what they're going to do to you? Two other criminals, verse 32, were also led away to be executed with him. So when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him. I'm not going to go into this in too much depth, but here again is another time where we should stop and pause. And think about what it means to be crucified. Isn't it amazing how God just so simply says things in the Bible? He simply says they crucified him. On March the 24th, on Sunday morning, it's Communion Sunday, I'm going to do a message on the cross. And so a lot of what I could talk about with crucifixion, I'm going to say for that particular Message, but don't pass over that word crucified. He was crucified there along with criminals, one on the right and one on the left, and they basically are a symbol of all humanity. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Here again, sinless corrupt, cruel humanity and what they're doing to Jesus and all Jesus can think of as He's being unjustly crucified is forgiveness? Wow. By the way, the word forgive literally means to let go of. And let's not forget what the Bible teaches about forgiveness. The Bible teaches in Psalm 103, verse 10, that God no longer holds our sin against us. 
In Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, the Bible says God sends away our sin as far as the east is from the west. In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, he says he casts our sin into the depth of the sea. And in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, the Bible teaches us that God even forgets about our sin. And guess what? Here's the challenge for us. God, God asks of His children to forgive others the way we've been forgiven. Wow. Some of us need to let go. Send what others have done away. Forget about it. Stop thinking about it. Because that's what God does to our sins. Then they threw dice to divide his clothes. The people also stood there watching for the rulers ridiculed him. The word ridiculed in verse 35 means to deride by turning up the nose. Think of it. People are passing by the sinless Son of God and literally sneering at him and turning their nose up at him. Do we think we need a Savior? <laughs> and then they say, He saved others. Let Him save Himself. If He is the Christ of God, His chosen one. The soldiers also mocked Him, coming up and offering Him sour wine and saying, If you're the King of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over Him, This is the King of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanging there railed at Him, saying, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. I want to make this point. The only way for Jesus to save us was not to save Himself. If He would have saved Himself as they wanted Him to in demonstration, we would have all been lost. The only way for any of us to be saved was that He was willing to not save Himself and call on the angels not that even Jesus needed the angels. Jesus being the Son of God, all had to do was speak the word and could have come down from the cross at any time. And one of the criminals says in verse 41, And we rightly so, for we are getting what we deserve for we, what we did. This man has done nothing wrong, nothing harmful. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. The word remember means to be mindful of. You know, the cool thing is, the Bible teaches us that Jesus always is mindful of us. We're always on his mind. That there is never a time in our existence, ever since we've been created. In fact, the Bible teaches in Psalm 139, even before we were created, His thoughts were on us. He's always been mindful of us. If you're here tonight and you don't think that Jesus is mindful of you and remembering you and somehow has forgotten you, you need to get your faith boosted. And realize it's not how you feel. It's what you know by faith. And the Bible clearly teaches God always has you on His mind. He will never forget you.
By the way, this verse also teaches us that the kingdom of Jesus isn't of this world. When the criminal said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he even knew Jesus' kingdom isn't of this world. Jesus' kingdom one day is coming, but right now this this earth is not the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today, this very day, you'll be with me. I talked about that a few weeks ago when we studied 1 Thessalonians 4 about the death of a Christian. Notice the cosmic signs going on here. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. That was certainly unusual. The light of the world was being crucified. No wonder it was dark and the sun failed. Then the temple curtain was torn in two. That's significant. The curtain between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. A curtain that separated everyone except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement that could literally go into what represented the presence of God. And now that the Son of God was giving His life and shedding His blood so that men and women could have a personal relationship, there didn't need to be a barrier anymore between men and God. God, through Christ, was giving everyone access into the very presence of God through Jesus. You and I today don't have to go through a mediator or a priest or we don't have to go into a temple or whatever. All we have to do at any time is call upon the name of the Lord. And He's there. We have access unhindered at any time because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit or entrust my spirit. Boy, what an example to us. Even when we're going through terrible suffering, we've got to learn to just commit and entrust ourselves into the hands of God. And the Bible says, then he breathed his last. We already talked about the Roman centurion, again, testifying that Jesus was righteous and innocent. And then even all the crowds, verse 48, that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. The phrase, beating their breasts, literally is a phrase that describes a disquieted conscience. In other words, what they had observed and seen that day was really starting to bother them. It should. It should. And all those who knew Jesus stood at a distance, and the women who had followed Him from Galilee saw all these things. Don't miss that. (laughs) These women had been with Him all three years of His earthly ministry. They stuck with Him. That's why I even put there at Jesus' burial as we move into that for just a couple minutes, there was a remnant who was faithful standing by Him to the very end. In fact, one of them was named Joseph of Arimathea there in verse 50. There was a man named Joseph who was a member of the council. A good and righteous man. The Bible is reminding us that there's always, there's always a remnant. There's always a few. Even in the midst of maybe a crowd that rejects, there's always a few. And Joseph was that man. He had not consented. The word means to agree with or literally vote for their plan and action. He was from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. That's an important phrase. It means to expect the fulfillment of God's promises. 
That's the fuel for our spiritual fire, folks. When you and I are able to look forward to the kingdom, to not live for the here and now, but to live in such a way that we truly expect God to fulfill all of His promises. Are the promises of God and His Word fueling you every day? Helping you to rise above the circumstances and the the situations on earth and not be living for our kingdom or any earthly kingdom, but to be living for the kingdom that is to come. That was Joseph. That's what gave him the courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. Took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb, cut out of the rock where no one had been buried. It was the day of preparation, Friday. Sabbath is Saturday. Day of preparation is Friday. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had accompanied Jesus from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they returned and prepared aromatic spices and perfumes. Obviously, too, they were going to come back and finish the job after the Sabbath was over, over, and on the Sabbath, the Bible says, they rested according to the commandment. Folks, in this chapter, God is showing us how much man needs a Savior. Because the Romans, the Gentiles, and the Jews crucified the sinless Son of God. but I want to encourage you with this. You'll notice there in the middle of your notes under Jesus' encounter with the crowd, letter D, in the midst of such injustice, sin, corruption, cruelty, God designed a means of victory. See, Jesus' death meant the possibility of life for someone else. And one of the things God wants to do with Luke chapter 23 is remind us that even when it seems as it does here that darkness prevails that darkness is winning that all is hopeless that God isn't in control or on the throne that that everything is in chaos and in turmoil God's got everything under control and God is actually achieving His victory and His plan and His purpose even when it looks Absolutely dark. So how does that translate into our lives? Even when you're going through a season of life that you think is really dark, here's what you and I have to keep remembering. God is achieving victory even in my darkness. God is achieving victory even in our darkness. Folks, before we close tonight, a couple of announcements and then we'll pray. In two weeks, March the 26th, Tuesday night, we're going to be starting a new series in the book of 2 Corinthians. We rolled these postcards out Sunday. Again, we don't do a lot of advertising or promotion here at the Oasis. You guys are our promotion. What I asked each of the folks on Sunday to do is this, and here's what I'm going to ask you. Would you consider taking one of these 
and inviting someone to come with you to this study of 2 Corinthians. It has on the front a picture of a Corinthian temple. It has in the big block here, 2 Corinthians, the Oasis 2C Night Bible Study, beginning 3-26-13 at 7 p.m. On the back, it has the name of our church, our P.O. box, our website, our phone number for our church, where we're located, a map, and then... I give a a sort of a description of what the series is about that I think will resonate with people. Here's what we put. Life is filled with trouble, struggle, problems, hurts, pain, disappointment, disillusionment, unfulfillment, and despair. How do we reconcile this reality with our faith in God? How can we navigate through these crushing experiences and come out stronger on the other side? What is the purpose for all our afflictions? These are the questions we'll be examining as we study the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Please join us as we study this relevant and strengthening book. Folks, I'm asking you, help us get the word out about this study. I think that this study is just could be so huge if, if Christians would just come and just allow the Lord to take His word and encourage them and strengthen them. Let me, add, let me also throw this out tonight. Another exciting thing is for the first four Tuesdays of April, and this isn't the only time we're going to do this, but I know many of you have come up to me in the past several months and said, Jeff, we would love to have a class on evangelism. We would like to know more about sharing our faith. And especially as we get involved in things like the park ministry and we get involved with foster group homes and things like that, many of you are going, you know what? I need to become a little bit more confident in sharing the gospel with someone who's lost if I get that opportunity. And I want to start sharing my faith. I want to witness more. The first four Tuesdays of April, okay? I think it's the 2nd, the 9th, the 16th, and the 23rd. Those are the dates. We're going to have an evangelism class also going along with our study of 2 Corinthians right here on the campus. It's going to be taught by Nathan. There he is. Nathan Lambert. If you would like to talk more uh, to Nathan about that, but we're going to be announcing that as well. Because here's my anticipation. We're going to have, I think, some new people come to this study which is going to allow us, you know, and and here's the thing. I already told Nathan, if I got one, if it's just me and Nicole in here on Tuesday nights and the rest of you want to go take the evangelism, I'm happy with that. I'm okay with that. Because if you want to learn how to share your faith, I think it's a great class and I'm excited about it. Nathan and I have talked. We are on the same page with this. I love what he's going to do with this class. Uh, He's a great teacher And uh, I just want our people to take advantage of it. Now, again, I've already talked with him about this. This may be something that depending on the interest, we may do a couple times a year. We may do it in the spring. We may also do it in the fall. So we're going to have a lot of exciting things happening. March 26th, this series starts. April the 2nd, for four weeks, if you're interested in an evangelism class, that class is also going to begin on Tuesday night. I'm just hoping that this campus becomes a buzz. I mean, it already, you guys do a good job. I'm hoping it even becomes a greater buzz on Tuesday night. We want to see people come and study the Word of God and be changed. Speaking of that, one more thing, I'll let you go. We had over 50 people show up for our foster group home 
meeting after church on Sunday. Don't forget that if you are filling out an application, you need to get that application in by March the 27th, correct? Oh, okay, sorry. They need to tell, you need to tell my wife Lisa if you're going to the training by March the 27th. Okay, any other announcements about that though? If, if you have any questions about the foster group home ministry and you weren't able to make it to the meeting, just see Lisa. She'll be happy to uh, talk with you about that. We have a great response for that as well. One other thing, really important. Um, yesterday, as many of you know, if you saw the local news at all, uh, there's been a lot of terrible accidents lately, but, but one that hits a little bit close to home for many of us here is the Galaska family, the uh, husband and father that had the two teenage boys that they crashed into that semi on the 17 and the 13-year-old was immediately killed. Um, I got to know Laurie uh, by working over at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship and she was on staff, well, she still is on staff there and just a great gal. And uh, I know, I know that they would appreciate your prayers uh, to lose a child and to have another one that is an 11-year-old that is not doing well at all, uh, and then to, as the husband and the father to deal with all of this and uh, as a mom. So just be praying for the Galaska family. Um, I know that they will appreciate our prayers. And it's really neat to talk about how God works. Jeff and Teresa Lindquist are not here tonight. They normally are because they're actually down at the hospital ministering to the Galaxa family. They know them really well and have known them for quite a while. And uh, they were actually down there last night ministering to them. And uh, they talked to Lisa and I today and said that, uh, you know, they were going to take the opportunity to go back down again tonight. And we said, you go, you know, that's where you need to be. So be praying for Jeff and Teresa, too, because they have uh, quite an opportunity to to just just grieve and and just be with this family that's that's suffered such a terrible, terrible loss. I don't know, I, I, I do not know for sure about the spiritual condition of, of the rest of them, but I know that Laurie, the mom, the wife, is a Christian. I know that she knows the Lord. So um, let's just keep the Galaska family in our prayers as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for how stable a foundation you have given us. Lord, your word, your promises are sure. And God, even like the passage we looked at tonight where it looked like the devil had won, that God had lost, that all hope was gone and that darkness was going to win, that God, you were still reigning. You were providing through all of this a means of victory for the rest of us so that we could sing victory in Jesus. That Jesus died so that we might live. God, help us to cling to those truths. To realize, Lord, even in our life, when things seem dark, when you seem far away, when it seems like all hope is lost, 
that you're still in control. That you are still on the throne. That you are still providing a means of victory for each of us. And you are still at work. And nothing will thwart your purpose and your plan. God, take us from this place tonight. Instill in us an encouragement and a confidence that can only come from you. And God, we just want to lift up this family, the Galaska family, to you tonight. As Nicole even said earlier to us about sensing your arms of love wrapped around us, Lord, we pray for that for this family as well. That God, like never before, that they would sense you being so near to them. That, that, that there would be such supernatural grace and comfort coming from you. And God, we, we pray for healing for that 11-year-old. We pray for healing and in so many ways for the Father. We pray for Laurie. And God, we pray tonight for Jeff and Teresa who are down there representing you, being you to that hurting family. Use them, God. Use them in a great way to minister to that family. And God, go with us. Excite us about you and your word. Excite us about the things that you're doing here and the opportunities that you're providing for people to come and to to truly grow like never before. Take us, Lord, to a place that you want us to go. Help us not to hold you back. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, 